Good evening. Search planes and fishing boats hunted along the Alaska coast today for a small plane that disappeared yesterday on a flight from Anchorage to Juneau. On that plane, four men, one of them the Democratic leader of the House of Representatives, Hale Boggs of Louisiana. The 58-year-old Louisiana congressman was in Alaska campaigning for the re-election of that state's only congressman, Nick Begich. Boggs spoke Sunday night at a dinner for Begich at an Anchorage hotel before leaving with him and others yesterday morning on the flight to Juneau. It was a warm reception. But then the next day, trouble. Somewhere along the 550-mile planned flight path, the plane disappeared in a rainstorm. Close your eyes, picture Alaska. What do you see? Mountains, snow, waves? Do you feel cold, alone? Somewhere in that expanse lies the wreckage of a missing Cessna and the bodies of four men, including two U.S. congressmen. Their disappearance on October 16, 1972, prompted the largest search in American history, a search that spanned 39 days and covered 325,000 square miles. Yet no sign of the men or their plane ever surfaced. No oil slick, no wreckage, nothing, ever. This story is one of the great mysteries of American history, but you've probably never heard of it, and that's okay. Even in 1972, it vanished from the headlines within weeks. A nation consumed with Watergate and Vietnam quickly moved on. For the families of the men, of Congressman Hale Boggs and Nick Begich, pilot Don Johns, and political aide Russ Brown, it was a slower process. Without a wreck, there were no definitive answers, no closure. Eleven children, including the journalist Cokie Roberts and future U.S. Senator Mark Begich, lost their fathers. The weather that day in 1972 was turbulent, the skies a violent gray. The plane was last heard from near a rugged mountain pass. It was presumed to have iced up and crashed, perhaps crumpled into a glacier or submerged in frigid water. That presumption, that the plane was felled by ice, explains in part why so little attention has been paid to this story during the past 50 years. Alaska, bad weather, a small plane, nothing special. Sure, there were two congressmen on board. So what, right? But the story that was never told, the story I uncovered during a nine-year investigation, is much more complex. My name is John Walczak. I'm an investigative journalist based in New Orleans. And since 2011, I've obtained thousands of pages of government documents, interviewed dozens of people, and traveled all over the nation researching the disappearance. What I learned is bizarre, and until now, largely untold. Nearly 50 years after the plane vanished, people are dying and time is running out. This mystery will be solved now or will likely never be solved. And to be honest, I'm exhausted. But I'm making one final push to solve this case. I'm not giving up yet, but I need your help. One last thing. I struggled with whether or not I should even tell this story or just let it be. Publishing it will hurt people. 
It will drag out allegations of affairs and murder. Few people, including FBI agents, journalists, and politicians, end up looking good at the end. If you're in Alaska and you're hearing this for the first time, ask yourself why. Because well-connected people in your state know significant parts of this story, and they're not telling it to you. But first, some background. Let's flash back to October 15th, 1972. The only thing I remember was that uh, my husband told me we were having a reception and expecting, I don't know, 120 people or something. That's Susan Mellish. She and her husband, Donald, hosted a cocktail fundraiser for the congressman in Anchorage the night before they disappeared. Donald remembers that Boggs, who had just flown in from D.C., was jet-lagged but jovial as he spoke to a small crowd in front of a fireplace. Everybody's having a good time, and, and they talked about their trip, and, uh, you know, Boggs was excited about going down to Southeast and to the country, and that's about it. After the reception, the congressman drove to a dinner fundraiser in a packed hotel ballroom, their final public event. Alan Dodds Frank was a young reporter who covered it for the Anchorage Daily News. Boggs was a very, you know, energetic, uh, thoughtful speaker who pumped up the crowd. You know, and he's got everybody uh, on their feet. And more important, he was he was a big attraction to raise money for baggage and, and draw a big crowd. Boggs was indeed a VIP. His visit to Alaska was a big deal. He had been friends with Presidents John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, was expected to be elected the next Speaker of the House, and in the 1960s, during a pivotal moment in American history, he had supported civil rights legislation, something which almost cost him his seat in 1968. Because I come from the Deep South, but uh, I have consistently believed in the Bill of Rights, and I have voted for civil rights, and I have voted for voting rights, just as I didn't think the people of uh, the territory of Alaska should be second-class citizens. I didn't think that the people who had a color of skin that was different from mine who lived in my community, community should be second-class citizens, so I voted that way. But perhaps what Boggs is best known for is his service on the Warren Commission, which investigated JFK's assassination. Inevitably, when people hear I'm working on this story, they ask whether or not I think the congressman's disappearance had anything to do with Kennedy's death. My answer is, emphatically, no. In private letters and public remarks, Boggs expressed confidence in the commission's findings. The Warren Commission uh, uh, took testimony from... uh, many, many witnesses, well over a thousand. The testimony runs in 26 bound volumes uh, into many, many millions of words. Uh, It had at its disposal the complete resources of the uh, FBI, the Secret Service, the CIA, the intelligence of the Army, Navy, Air Force, the State Department. The only admonition we had was to find the truth. And we sought the truth. And I 
my, my own conviction is that we found it. I have, and my, my own conviction is that there's no doubt about it. Even though I found nothing indicating Boggs' disappearance had anything to do with the Kennedy assassination, I did uncover serious allegations of a different conspiracy. I'll get to that in due time. For now, though, let me say this. It's amazing what you can dig up with a Freedom of Information Act request or a deep dive in an archive. Here are two quick examples. One, on the night of July 23, 1970, someone in a late model Lincoln Continental forced Boggs off the road in D.C. near the intersection of Woodley Road and 34th Street. Boggs gave chase and took down a license plate number. Beyond that, I don't know much. The incident, which, picture it, a congressional car chase, was only documented on a single sheet I obtained from the FBI. Two, while digging through documents at Tulane University, I found a letter dated December 1963 indicating Boggs planned to keep a diary while serving on the Warren Commission. That diary, if it existed, would obviously be of immense interest to historians and conspiracy buffs alike, a behind-the-scenes account of the investigation into the Kennedy assassination. Sadly, though, I found no proof Boggs followed through and actually kept one. A member of his family told me they were unaware of the existence of any diary. If Boggs wasn't murdered because of his service on the Warren Commission, some people say, maybe he was killed because of his feud with J. Edgar Hoover, the infamous FBI director. I don't buy it, but the feud was real. In April 1971, Boggs had taken to the floor of Congress to slam Hoover and the FBI, which he compared to the Gestapo. Good evening. Hale Boggs, the Democratic leader of the House, insists that his telephone has been tapped that the FBI is spying on his personal life, and as he puts it, we are living in a police state today. The FBI said the charge was, in its words, absolutely and utterly false. But Boggs was insistent. He said J. Edgar Hoover was incompetent and should resign. And he asked the question, if this can happen to the majority leader of the House of Representatives, what do you think could happen to an ordinary citizen? The Nixon administration was pissed off and it pushed back. Attorney General John Mitchell accused Boggs of, quote, tapanoia. At the White House, President Nixon was, ironically, caught on tape discussing Boggs with then-Congressman Gerald Ford, who didn't know he was being recorded. Hello? Congressman Ford, Mr. President. Good morning, Mr. President. Hi, Jerry. How are you? What's the matter with your opposite number? He's nuts. My God, I, I, when I read the Star last night, and incidentally, I thought you made fine comment, but I, uh, I said, uh, well, Jesus, right did you know that the FBI has not had a tap, not only on, not only on no congressman or no senator, but not even any play, anybody that has ever, the moment they cross into that Capitol for 20, since 1924. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but Bert, I, it's, I... I mean, oh, Hoover's got the record. I mean, this is the most ridiculous damn thing. And, but the fellow is, uh, it's, he's on the sauce, isn't that it? Well, I, I'm afraid that's right, Mr. Or is he crazy? I mean, well, he's... He's either drinking too much or he's taking some pills that, uh, yeah. that are upsetting him mentally. Uh, yeah. Last Thursday, when we were getting the program for this week, yeah. he was mumbling, he was... Uh, almost incoherent. It was very embarrassing to Carl and to yeah. everybody who was on the floor. Yeah. Boggs liked to drink, sure, but Nixon liked to slander people, and I have no idea if any of this is true. 
Regardless, as NBC's David Brinkley pointed out, their bad blood did highlight bitter tensions in the body politic. As Boggs said, numerous members of Congress believe, at least, that their phones are tapped and they're being spied on, or both. Even if they believe this wrongly, the fact they believe it at all tells a great deal about the mood and temper in Washington these days. Ultimately, there's no evidence Hoover had anything to do with Boggs' disappearance. In fact, Hoover himself died in May 1972, five months before Boggs vanished. When Boggs landed in Alaska on October 15, 1972, he found a state undergoing a rapid transformation. Only four years earlier, Alaskans had discovered they were sitting on a sea of gold, black gold. That's the cap on the first oil well struck on the North Slope in Alaska, this country's biggest oil strike in a generation, bigger than Texas. This is the shore of Prudhoe Bay, but it's hard to tell where the shore stops and the bay starts because the so-called land in summer is two-thirds water and one-third mud. Tundra, it's called. In the winter, it's all frozen since we're well inside the Arctic Circle up toward the North Pole. It's so cold here in the winter, 65 below zero with the wind blowing. Even the Eskimos left a long time ago, and until now, the caribou had it all to themselves. But now, with the oil strike, the oil companies are moving in and drilling and building camps for their workers. It's about as rough as in the Alaska gold rush of the 1890s, and the men are just as tough. But before Alaska could reap the benefits of that oil, a pipeline needed to be constructed. And before a pipeline could be constructed, there were legal and political obstacles to overcome, including demands from Alaska natives that they be compensated for their land, across which part of the pipeline would be built. This is how Nick Begich got a chance to make a massive, lasting impact on the state and the nation. In his first and only term in Congress, Begich helped pass the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, or ANCSA, which President Nixon signed into law. ANCSA gave Alaska Natives 44 million acres of land and nearly $1 billion, paving the way for pipeline construction to eventually begin. Begich's raw political talent driven by an earnest, nerdy charm, an infectious laugh, and a hard-charging work ethic, drew the attention of leaders like Hale Boggs. By this time, I'd gotten very fond of him. And also, I'd met his wife, and I liked her better than him anyway. This is the final recording of Boggs, taken the night before he disappeared. In it, he discusses the turbulent political moment and fears of creeping authoritarianism that ultimately a totalitarian form of government comes along. And of course, the idea of any such thing occurring or necessary in this country is ridiculous. The idea that we should have 25% of the industrial capacity of the United States lying idle today when every city needs rebuilding, when project after project after project cries out 
It's something that I reject offhand. After Boggs finished speaking, Begich took the podium. Though he was expected to easily win re-election, he didn't want to take victory for granted. That wasn't his style. He had a busy few weeks planned. We will be in the state the next uh, approximately 21 days through the end, making approximately 200 appearances from now on. And uh, we want you to know that uh, it, uh, Hale says, where do you get the energy when you get people who turn out like this for you? You get the energy in return. It's spontaneous with me. I sort of live off the, off the gatherings of crowds. Anything more than two gets me going. <laughs> Tonight we've got quite a few twos, <laughs> so I may not sleep tonight. <laughs> this tape, rediscovered in 2016, fades in and out. To Cal and Carol and Lonnie and Barbara and Dr. and Mrs. Olay and Anna Kramer and all of you who made this affair uh, such a success tonight. This is one time I was not too closely associated with the event as I have in the past. We've had too many things go on the last two uh, weeks in And with that, the video cuts out. Eight days earlier, on October 7th, Begich had given his final recorded interview to Tom Duncan of KUAC, a radio station in Fairbanks. Congressman Begich, I'd like to shift the scene from Alaska to Washington. Do you feel that the Watergate affair will have any influence on President Nixon's campaign for re-election? Oh, sure it will. I think all of these things. In fact, I call that, uh, uh, I'm sure you've heard of Mission Impossible. I call that Mission Incredible. It's the most incredible thing I've ever imagined. When Mr. Nixon, way back in those days, was way, way ahead in the points totals, and to get connected with this kind of a thing, it just, uh, it, it was, well, it was insulting to the American system, a fair play. Americans react to that. And I could see why he's trying to disavow any association with that affair. I would if I were in his position too, because it's most incredible that you'd have it tied to the higher echelon. That's being tied right now. There's been some real revelations the last couple of days. Begich, a clean, scandal-free politician, denounced Nixon's behavior, but recognized that the president remained popular. He predicted Nixon's Democratic opponent, Senator George McGovern, who was down in the polls, would come out swinging and said the race was still unpredictable. So it might be an interesting campaign yet. Don't underestimate the American public this year. Nobody can count what's going to happen. Strange year, indeed. Whoever thought a year ago that McGovern would be the candidate? I didn't. Be very honest about it. Neither did McGovern, maybe, with 6% of the vote, you know, back in Florida. Look what happened to him. Congressman Begich, thank you very much. As Begich and Boggs campaigned in Anchorage on October 15th, Don Johns, a 38-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Bush pilot in Fairbanks, 360 miles to the north, got an unexpected call. His friend, Tom Coromettis, was with him when the phone rang. I went over to Don's place, and here came that call. And Don says, uh, Tom, let's go. I said, where are we going? He said, got to go to Anchorage to fly this guy to um, Beggage and this guy to Juneau. I said, I can't. I left uh, Sandra over at Barry's place. Sandra was Tom's wife. And he said, okay, I've got to go. And he, that's when he backed up and took off. But before he drove to the airport, Johns called one of his mechanics, Phil Hewitt, 
who had just finished a 100-hour maintenance inspection on the plane Johns wanted to take to Anchorage. And he called me in the evening about 6 o'clock, and I says, it's sitting in the hangar warm. He says, well, could you roll it out? I need that aircraft, and roll it out and fuel it up for me. I says, okay. Well, when he got there, the airplane was sitting outside, fueled up, ready to go, and I met him. He says he was going to Anchorage with it and spending the night. Do you remember the last thing he said to you? Goodbye. I will, you know, uh, he walked around the airplane, done a pre-flight check, and I I did most of the talking. I told him about the airplane. Everything was buttoned up. Everything looked good. It was fixed. Fueled. Oil's fine. Spark plugs are clean. This would be the first flight out of it. And he went and got in the airplane and closed the door. And before he did, I said, have a good flight. Fired up the engine. He waved to me out the cockpit window and started taxiing out. And it get kind of windy standing in the back of them props. And so I turned around and walked to the truck. Well, I walked back to the hangar, which was real close. Shut the lights out, closed the door, and went home. At 7.40 p.m., Johns landed in Anchorage. 50 minutes later, as Boggs and Begich spoke only a few miles away, Cheryl James, then Cheryl Mitchell, met him at the airport. Johns and James had dated for about a year. I picked him up at the airport, and we went out and we had dinner, and um, he wouldn't drink. I think he had one drink, and that's it. Because he was flying, he really restricted his um, alcohol intake. I remember during the night, he woke up like two times, and checked the weather forecast because he was really concerned about weather. And that, back then, was a matter of picking up a phone, landline phone, and calling. And then I took him to the airport the next day. That morning, Johns and James arrived at the airport sometime before 8 a.m. We went to the airport and we had breakfast. And then after breakfast, and I think that may have been where he called... Johns, who was divorced, placed a brief call to his 10-year-old son, Aaron. And then we um, went to the aircraft. It was parked below the tower. Got in the aircraft, and we taxied over and got gas, um, filled up the plane. And then we taxied back. That probably took maybe a half an hour, I'm guessing. When we got back, there were three men standing there waiting for us. And... Um, he parked the plane. We both got out. We kind of introduced ourselves to each other. And um, they got on board the aircraft. Cheryl James left shortly after 8.40. She didn't see the plane take off. Is it surreal to you that you played a small part in history, that you were the very last person to see these men alive, these men who had families, and Boggs, who was a historic figure, who was on the Warren Commission and played a role in passing civil rights legislation. And you were the very last human being on the planet to see them alive. I, it's really hard to believe that I was the last person. I mean, it just, 
And I don't think of it in the, I just think of them all getting on board that airplane and that being the end. Um, the last one. It's hard to believe. At 8.55, John's requested permission to taxi down runway 24R. Four minutes later, he lifted off. Melvin South, a control tower operator, was the last person to spot the plane, a white and orange Cessna 310C. Everything appeared normal. At 9.09, John spoke with Robert Mahoney, an FAA flight service specialist. For years, I tried to locate a tape of their conversation, but had no luck. The FAA says it no longer exists. John's estimated the flight would take about three and a half hours. Mahoney asked whether or not he had emergency gear and a locator beacon on board, and Johns replied, affirmative. Then, silence. At 1.15 p.m., 45 minutes after the plane was scheduled to land in Juneau, word reached the U.S. Air Force Rescue Coordination Center that the men were overdue. At 3, when the plane still hadn't arrived, and when it theoretically would have run out of fuel, concern ratcheted up. It affected everyone in town. It was like wildfire. Baggage box. The plane didn't arrive. Where's baggage? And the whole town was paralyzed. It was, it was just frozen moment. And, of course, it always is with a plane crash. Um, We in the state of Alaska don't have many roads. So our means of transportation are airplanes. So it's nothing, and we don't even think about it. I'm going to just hop the plane and go to Juneau, go to Anchorage, go to Nome, Kotzebue. It's our means and mode of travel. So it's always frightening when you hear the plane didn't arrive, uh, missing late. And everyone has the same paralysis in their brain. Oh, my God, where are they? Teresa Gertson was a Civil Air Patrol volunteer in Juneau. She was working at a shoe store when the call came in that the plane was overdue. I just remember it was serious. It was, you know, time stopped. It was very serious. People then were just hushed. Everyone was talking. The plane is missing out you know, it was just because then people because then activity started happening in the little shoe store. People were in and out the door, and what would soon morph into a massive search operation began simply enough with the help of fishing boats, volunteer pilots, and a few military planes. But there was only so much they could do. The weather was bad, and it was getting dark. Across the country, in Bethesda, Maryland, Lindy Boggs, Hale's wife, was dozing off at her kitchen table 
with Rowan and Martin's laughing blaring on the TV. Here she is in 1994 recalling that moment. It was almost asleep. I was waiting for Hale to come in uh, from the airport in Washington. And I had a telephone call that startled me just because I was half asleep and completely startled my little dog. And the dog uh, tried to get between me and the telephone. Oh, my goodness. He jumped onto the table where the phone was, tried to knock the phone out like of my he hand. Knew. Yes, like he knew. And it was Carl Albert telling me that he didn't want me to hear the 10 o'clock news. Carl Albert was then speaker. He was speaker of the house. Yes. Yes. I really wanted to interview Lindy, but in July 2013, only two weeks before I moved to New Orleans, she died at the age of 97. I, I, of course, was shocked and, and apprehensive and all of that. But uh, by the time we hung up, uh, the phone, of course, then began to ring. ring off the hook. And two of the people who called were Teddy Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey, both of whom had been down in planes with the pilot, with Don Johns, on other occasions and who testified to me in glowing terms about what an ingenious and remarkable person and pilot Don was, and that I should not be too apprehensive about all of this. Meanwhile, about 10 miles away, the Begich family, Nick's wife Peggy and their six young kids, were watching a cop show called The Rookies, when their phone rang, 10-year-old Mark picked up. It was Alaska Governor Bill Egan. Peggy took the phone. When she returned to the living room, she abruptly told the kids to go to bed. They scurried off, and she started calling family and friends to let them know Nick was missing. Later that night, Several ham radios crackled to life in rural Northern California. Operators heard a man, a pilot, begging for help. Next time on Missing in Alaska. They notified me of what they heard of the plane going down. Said they were close to some island or, or land, anyhow, and they were going down. Before we go, I want to let you know that at the end of each episode, I'll be giving you a task, something you can do or some way you can help move the story forward. And then I'll give you our tip line and details on how to anonymously send us information or even documents via email. Some of these tasks will be interactive and relatively easy. Some will be specialized and difficult. The goal is to add you, our audience, to our investigative team. This week, you have three tasks. First, Help me find a recording of the final conversation between Don Johns, the missing pilot, and Robert Mahoney, an FAA flight service specialist. A tape existed, at least in 1972. So far, the FAA has been unable to locate it, saying it was likely destroyed. If you know where it might be in some musty box, feel free to contact us. Second, help me figure out who took the last known photo of the missing congressman. It's a black and white image of them getting into a car at the Anchorage airport, 
probably right after Hale Boggs arrived from D.C. on October 15, 1972. Multiple newspapers around the nation published it, crediting the Associated Press. But I'm not sure if it was taken by an AP photographer, or more likely, by a photographer for one of the Anchorage papers. We'll post the photo online for you to see. Finally, if you know anyone who attended the congressman's final events, the cocktail fundraiser at the Mellish's house, or the dinner at the Anchorage Westward Hotel, check with them to see if they have any photos from that night. If so, let us know. You can reach us by phone at 1-833-MIA-TIPS. That's 1-833-642-8477. Again, 1-833-642-8477. Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Deccan is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. You can find me on Twitter at, at John Walzak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. Footage for this episode was provided by CBS, NBC, KUAC, Louisiana Public Broadcasting, and the Vanderbilt Television News Archive. Special thanks to the Louisiana Research Collection at Tulane University, the Wisconsin Historical Society, the Alaska and Polar Regions Collections and Archives at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and Christoph Zappari in New Orleans. Missing in Alaska is a co-production of iHeartMedia and Greenfort Media.